Our gospel lesson is found in Matthew chapter 8. We're reading verses 23 through chapter 9, verse 9. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went out and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word today, we confess that in us there is darkness, but in your Son there is great light. In us, poverty, but in him, eternal riches. And so we come today, and we come needy and poor, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak, for your servants are here to listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tax collectors of Jewish descent were not the favorite amongst their peers. Their vocation worked something more like being a tax farmer. They were responsible to produce a certain amount of revenue for the Roman government. But once they had met that revenue, that certain allotted amount, they were able to keep the remainder of their collections for themselves. 
they were morally and politically compromised in the opinion of their peers. As lepers were untouchable due to their infectious disease, tax collectors were untouchable due to their corrupt vocation. They were despised. But Jesus comes upon a man named Matthew. He is in his tax collecting office and he issues him a command. He summons him. Simple words, follow me. We are then simply told the response. He rose and followed him. It certainly is remarkable that Matthew, this ethically compromised, politically compromised man on the margins of Jewish society, collaborating with the hated Roman government, listened to Jesus. And the question for us this morning is, why would he? Why would he listen to Jesus? And more importantly, and perhaps more significantly, is why should you? Because the same summons that came to Matthew in his tax-collecting office is the summons that you hear today. Our Lord Jesus commanding you, follow me. And when Jesus calls us with these words, it, there is an uncompromised and unmitigated and unconditional allegiance that he is asking for. He commands us to bid farewell to our independence and to our autonomy. He calls us not to the head of the line, not to be the line leader, but rather to get in line, to be a follower of him. This means that we must renounce ourselves, turning against that native instinct that is within all of us to govern our own lives. And he calls us to submit ourselves to his governance and his direction, to be second in line, not first. And so again, why follow? Why would anyone submit to such complete and comprehensive authority uncompromising authority, calling for our full and total and holistic obedience. And in Matthew 8 and 9, in the midst of this summons to follow, we discover the answer. Three reasons about why we can trust Jesus and why we should entrust ourselves to him and rise and follow as Matthew did. And so we'll consider each of these this morning. And the first reason that we find to actually follow Jesus, to rise in answer to his command, is we see that Jesus overcomes the chaos. If you follow in verses 23 through 27 in chapter 8, we find a traditional story here about Jesus calming the sea. Now, throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms, if you were to follow in Psalm 65 or in Psalm 93 that we read earlier or in some other examples, you would see that the sea is a persistent metaphor for powers that cause upheaval and uncertainty. It refers to those forces that oppose the work of God in the world. The sea rages and fights against God's purposes. They threaten to take over the world, washing out everything that is good and instituting chaos. 
This is how the seas are often used in the Bible. In these verses, Jesus plays on that metaphor in an actual incident as he's crossing the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. We are told that a great storm blows up across the sea and that the storm nearly swamps the boat beneath its waves. Frightful. And Jesus, in verse 24, we learn, is asleep. The disciples come and wake him up. They wake him up with their prayers. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. They thought they were going to drown. So Jesus gets up. He rebukes the wind and the sea. And at his command, we are told that a great calm replaces the great storm. Just as fast as the storm had come up seemingly from nowhere, the storm dissipates and is gone. The disciples are left to marvel. And in verse 27, they ask the question, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And friends, we share in that same type of world because the threat of chaos is real. Just under three years ago in March of 2020, we all had the experience of that great sense of chaos, a storm that arose and battered us with waves, uncertain and anxious times. It was the experience of COVID in the early days of the coronavirus. Our lives were thrown into chaos. Employment was precarious. Prophets were saying that the church was never going to be the same, that revenue streams were going to be cut off, that jobs were going to be lost, financial markets were down. Even the air that we breathe seemed to jeopardize us. If you remember back to the early days, it was a frightening time as the death toll, toll climbed. Trouble seemingly lurked around every corner we all ask the question, am I safe? Are my children safe? Will my kids be affected? What is going to be left on the back side of a global pandemic? Uncertainty, anxiety, and fear reigned. It was an incredibly helpful moment, though. In the midst of our own culture, it was one of the first times in years that we've been reminded of the fragility and the uncertainty of life. And so though something chaotic was happening, it's also a very helpful spiritual moment. And though that threat has somewhat receded now in our cultural consciousness, we still occupy and daily live in an incredibly fragile world there's unemployment, inflation, there's disease and death, there's war and the rumors of war, there's injustice and evil. These lurk about and they haunt us with their possibilities, stoking fear and anxiety. This is the world of chaos that we live in. It's the fallen and broken order. It's the chaos that the disciples met in that storm that day. It's the chaos that surrounds us each and every day. But in Matthew 8, what we discover is that there is a greater power and order in our world than the forces of chaos. Jesus possesses the authority 
And Jesus possesses the power to tame that chaos. Not only can he tame them, but he can also use them for his good purposes. He elicits out of the disciples a confession of faith. When they ask their question, they are recognizing that they are in the presence of something greater than themselves. And so Jesus is able to take all of the chaos, and he controls it, he calms the storm, and he also uses it for his purpose. Jesus, the master of the winds and the sea, is not threatened by the chaos because he's greater than it. And this is the first compelling reason that's provided for us about why we answer to Jesus' authoritative command to follow. Because he is the Lord of creation. He is the one who is governing all things and using all things and the circumstances of life and even what many would count as evil. He uses it for his own good purposes in our lives. He overcomes the chaos. But second, we also see that Jesus overcomes our darkness. We move from the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in that, on the eastern shore, these were Gentile cities. It was not Israelite country. And it was there that Jesus encounters two demon-possessed men who lived amongst the tombs. That is, they lived amongst the dead. No one could pass by that way. The road was closed because the men were so fierce, we are told. They were violent. Jesus cast out the demons that lived inside of these men, and those demons had requested to enter into a herd of pigs. The pigs promptly rushed down the steep slope into the sea and were drowned. Now, it's important to recognize in this interaction the nature of demonic activity. It's displayed in the action of the herd. It's already seen in the lives of the men. They were isolated, alone, violent. They caused harm to others, and this is the power of the demonic. It's always destructive. It steals life. It doesn't give it, despite promising it. Matthew is sparse on the details, but if you follow along in Mark chapter 5 or in Luke chapter 8, where we also see this encounter, we find that the demoniacs, after being healed by Jesus, we are told that they are clothed and in their right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. A simple but elegant picture of the Christian life, that healed by Jesus, we then entrust ourselves to him, that he has overwhelmed our darkness. He has overwhelmed those powers that control us. And he brings us to heal, to sit at his feet, to listen to him and to be taught by him because we've experienced his overwhelming power. Flannery O'Connor, the Southern Gothic novelist, is known for her extreme and exaggerated characters. In fact, many people who pick up a short story or, or a novel of O'Connor's will find themselves unable to relate to the characters. And she was once asked about this, about the unrelatability of the characters, and she explained that she exaggerated her characters, and she did so for a specific reason. 
that the reason she exaggerated the characters was to make a point. And she was making a point because she perceived that no one thought there was a problem. And she was offering a commentary on broad society through this exaggerated character. And this is somewhat the situation here. With these two demoniacs living amongst the dead, we can think, how do I relate to them? My life doesn't look exactly like that. But what we find is Jesus going to the extreme, into Gentile territory, and healing two men whose lives have been torn apart by evil and demon possession. They were self-destructive. And it demonstrates to us that Jesus' power goes all the way out to that margin. And so how much more can his power change your life and heal your darkness and overwhelm it? And this is the second reason that we're provided to understand why we answer this summons to follow. It's because Jesus overcomes and overwhelms our darkness. The third and final argument that we find here in Matthew is we see that Jesus also overcomes our sin. In chapter 9 and verses 1 through 7, Jesus returns home, and a group of people, a company, bring a paralytic lying on a bed. Jesus turns after seeing their faith, and he says these words, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes, these were the religious authorities around, thought to themselves that Jesus was committing blasphemy because they knew that God alone had the power to forgive sins. And here was this upstart prophet in his own hometown claiming the prerogative and right to forgive sins. Jesus perceives their thought. And then in verses 4 through 6, listen to what he says. Knowing their thoughts, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus asked the question, which is easier to do? But in this question, he's really asking, which is more important? Jesus didn't heal the paralytic first and then forgive him. But no, rather he begins with forgiveness. And to demonstrate that he has the authority to forgive, he then heals. Jesus heals the man's paralysis, but more importantly, he pardons his sins. And earlier in chapter 8, last week, we saw that all of this activity of Jesus, all of the healing of, the, of disease, the forgiveness of sins that was being dispensed by him, that this was attributed to him fulfilling a certain office. And in verse 17 in chapter 8, we saw a verse quoted from Isaiah 53 about one who bore the sins and the griefs and the sorrows of humanity. And Isaiah fills it out for us that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he would be the one who goes and stands in the place of sinners, that he bears our condemnation, 
that the wrath of God that we have deserved is visited on him, that the condemnation of God that we have earned is poured out on him, and that Jesus overcomes our sin as the righteous one who stands in our place. And so we can hear these words, take heart, son, take heart, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And this is what Jesus has done on our behalf by standing in our place. Friends, Matthew responded, sitting in his tax collecting office, he rose and he followed Jesus. And it's been noted by commentators since the earliest days of the church that this incident in which Matthew rises and follows Jesus, it's sandwiched between nine other miracles. Running from chapter 8 through the end of chapter 9. And so commentators have been apt to then see that this call to Matthew and his response, that this too is a miracle. And it's frequently been labeled the tenth miracle of these two chapters. That yes, Matthew miraculously, he turns from a life of graft and greed, a life of betrayal, a life of ethical and political compromise. He turns from all of that with a word. And friends, that same summons comes to us today to turn, to follow, not to be the leader of the line, but secondary, behind Jesus, allowing him to govern us, turning away from ourselves, yielding ourselves to his governance and direction. And we do so when we catch a sight of who this one that commands us is, that he's the one who rules and reigns over the chaos of life, that he has it in hand, and that he can even use that chaos for his good purposes. And he calls us to trust him, and reminds us to believe in him, even when we can't understand why our boat is being swamped with water. That he calls us to trust him because he overwhelms our self-destructive darkness. That he has the power to bring healing where there seems to be absolutely no hope. And that he is the one who calls us to trust him because he overcomes our sin. That he has done the impossible. That he has the authority to say, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Because this is the most significant gift that we can have. That alienated from God otherwise and apart from him, we cannot know him. But Jesus offers us this reconciliation. And so when we hear the words, follow me, we don't hear a threat. We don't hear someone in a position of power attempting to abuse us. But rather, we hear the great master of the universe who suffers and dies in our place, who offers profound healing, who gives us the hope of the world to come, who has all of our best interests at heart. It's this one who says, follow me. And so let's ask for God's help to do so. Father, we confess all the cynicism and unbelief that can live inside of our hearts. And when we hear such an uncompromising command, 
to follow, to be second and not first. It fills us with fear and suspicion. But we see a gracious Savior who bears the weight of our sins, who overcomes all chaos in life, and who also overwhelms our darkness. And we ask God that in sight of that, in sight of who He is, that we will turn and that we'll follow and we'll know all the good things that you have for us in Him. Help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.